No, it's not time for the sermon yet. I wanted to share a little bit during uh, our living church section, a little bit about community groups. We were set to start last week uh, our new church year. So I was going to be getting back into the Gospel of Mark, which we're doing, and was going to talk to you a little bit about community groups. So Irma had something to say about all of that. And I don't know about you, I'm still losing my Irma weight. I have my normal weight that I have to lose, and then I have the Irma weight on top of my normal. It's a long trek it's going to be. Uh, I hope there are no more. I don't need Maria weight. Isn't she the one that's out there? We need that way, way, you know, middle of the ocean. Uh, What I want to do, though, is read out of Acts chapter 2 and take a little look And I promise this isn't the preaching portion, so this will be very brief. I told Andrew sets these up, and he says two to three minutes. I said, you sure you want me to do that? That is is not, usually you'd say, how is the weather? And I don't answer in two to three minutes. So I'm going to do the best I can. But in the early church, it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And all came upon every soul... And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved." The scripture says that, in essence, that what we are to do, the mandate that we've been given by Jesus, what is called the great commandment, is to love God with all our being, heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. So in other words, the mission's pretty easy to understand. It's loving God, it's loving one another, it's loving those outside of us, loving our neighbor, being the faithful presence of God's love uh, to those around us. And one of the primary ways, the primary vehicles or means that God has given to us, strategies, is by doing life together. If you look at and cultivating different practices. If you look at this passage, which is a descriptive passage uh, in the book of Acts, what did the early church go about doing? They were about discipleship and teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to worship because the breaking of bread and the prayers at that point, at that point of the passage, is referring to the Lord's Supper. So they were devoted to that. They had all things in common. They did life together. They met not only in the temple for formal worship, but in each other's homes. In other words, the early church knew something, that if you were going to truly be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you couldn't do it isolated. You couldn't do it alone. You couldn't do it by yourself. That we need one another. That along with the word and prayer and sacraments, that a means of grace that God has given us is our body life, our community life. And so one of the primary vehicles, our church is very simple in some ways. You have worship service that's done on the Lord's Day each week, and then we scatter throughout our area. Sometimes we meet here at the church, sometimes we meet in people's homes, but we scatter to basically do, I hope, what it says here In Acts chapter 2, we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, we're learning the word, we're spending time praying and worshiping together, we're loving each other, we're getting to know each other, we are being a community, a care network. I wanted to share that vision because I want to encourage you this year, it's the start of a new year, so it's time in a sense to cast vision a little bit. 
I want to encourage you, if you've never been a part of a community group before, to consider signing up and being a part of a community group this year. I'm going to ask that even if you're already a part of a community group, out on the podium in the narthex, we have a sign-up sheet, and I would like anyone who is interested to sign up. If you're already a part of one, just put the name of the one you're in in parentheses. And I want to just share with you some of the community groups we have going on that meet throughout the week. Rick Bartholomew teaches ones here, 5 o'clock, Rick, five on Sundays right here at the church, doing a terrific study on the Holy Spirit. Bill Spangler is starting one up in the New Smyrna area that's going to be meeting on Wednesday nights, and I think they'll be starting sometime in October. I lead one that will be meeting on the second and fourth Thursdays at the McClure home in Port Orange. We'll be doing the Apostles' Creed. Vic Headley will also be studying the Apostles' Creed, and they meet on, and I always get which Friday nights, two Friday nights a month. I think it's the second and fourth Friday nights, but see Vic if you have any questions. Andrew Leitner teaches one up in Ormond. Women, if you are interested, see Jamie Williams. She probably has 12, 13, 14 Titus II groups going on right about now. Any of a plethora of opportunities, ladies, for you to be involved in Titus II groups, or there's a women's Bible study that meets at 10 o'clock in the morning on Wednesdays, and we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. If you would like to be a part of the Spruce Creek, I call them the Spruce Creek Marines, and that's you want to get up early in the morning, 6.30 in the morning. Shane teaches one up in the conference room that is uh, going on every Friday at 6. So there are a lot of opportunities to get involved. I don't know about you, but, the, but life is hard enough and the Christian life is hard enough. I can't do it by myself. We need one another. And one of the primary functions of community groups is just like what's in its name, to create community. So I hope and pray that this year you will consider being a part of a community group. As we turn our hearts and our attention to the Lord's word this morning, let's pray and ask God to illumine and shape our minds and our hearts. Father, we come and bow before you, asking that you would give us your blessing of pouring out your spirit to renew our minds, to shape us, to conform us to Jesus Christ, to give us understanding, to understand not only what your word means, but how it applies to our lives, both individually and corporately to show us the beauty, the goodness, the holiness, the truth, the reality of Jesus. So illumine us, both as individuals and as a church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you'd please stand as we read God's word, if you're able. We are returning to the Gospel of Mark, and having finished the first half, we are looking at both Mark 8, beginning at verse 27, and I'm going to read down to chapter 9, verse 13. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples... He said to them, if anyone would come after me, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste to death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. We're returning this morning now to the second half of the Gospel of Mark. We looked at last fall, we looked at Mark chapters 1 through 8, and this year, kind of this church year, from now till probably Easter time-ish, we're going to be looking at Mark chapters 9 through 16. And Mark tells us in the beginning of his Gospel exactly what his narrative is all about. Chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, the gospel is all about Jesus, the Lord and King of the world. And Mark very conveniently divides his narrative into two halves. It's actually very simple to understand. Chapters 1 through 8 says, who is this king? It's all about Jesus. Who is he? What's he like? What's his personality like? How does he treat people? What is his character like? Chapters 9 through 16 is, what did he come to do? What did he come to accomplish? What is his mission an agenda. This morning I want to reintroduce us to the Gospel of Mark, largely focusing on some of the themes. It's in a sense a little bit of a review. Uh, I heard in terms of teaching that they say repetition is always good when teaching, and I know I could use it. So I'm got, if I quizzed you and said, uh, last September, what are some of the themes of the Gospel of Mark? How many of us would be able to know? Raise our Okay, one, whoever's charging that, I guess, knows. I'm not, I'm not sure what that looks like, you know. If that's the Lord's signal, he obviously knows. The rest of us, we probably need repetition. What do you think? And so this morning, I'm going to reintroduce us to some of the themes that we've covered to kind of refresh our memory a little bit and use it as a bridge forward as we move into the second half of the gospel. James Edwards, who's a prominent commentator on the Gospel of Mark, comments on this particular passage. He rightly says, Mark 8, 27 to 9, 1, he calls it a continental divide. Uh, 
between the first and second halves of the gospel. It unites Christology, who Jesus is, Lord of the earth, and discipleship in a unique relationship. It teaches that a proper confession of Jesus involves a new understanding of discipleship. When believers confess who Jesus is, they also and inevitably confess what they must become. That's, in a sense, the structure of the passage here, beginning in verse 27. Jesus asks, I'm looking around, who does everybody say that I am? And the disciples go, well, some are saying John the Baptist, some are saying Elijah, some are saying one of the prophets, and then he kind of goes from the general to the particular, the universal to the specific, and he says, ah, I'm pointing the finger at you now. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking for the rest, says, you are the Christ. Then he immediately goes to share what the implications of that confession is all about. Obviously, Peter's confession was correct. You are the Christ. And then he goes on to say, well, here's what it means. First, for me, it means that I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. And I'm going to rise again. And, of course, Peter would have none of that. He rebukes Jesus, and Jesus in turn rebukes Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, a rather stern confrontation. Why? Because Peter was in the wrong, clearly in the wrong. He says, you have set your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. And then Jesus goes and he says, so if this is the implications of that confession, here's the implications for me. These are the implications for you. So in other words... When we confess that Jesus is the Christ, that has implications on our life. What are some of those implications? Well, to reintroduce some of the themes, review, and share some of the implications on our lives, I want to look at this under three headings this morning. Three themes or three headings to look at the content of the gospel or the content of discipleship, to look at the context of the gospel, the context of discipleship, And then lastly, to look at the pattern of the gospel, or the pattern of discipleship. So in other words, we have three themes of the gospel, and the gospel being all about discipleship. It has content, it has a context, and it has a pattern. And if it had a pattern for Jesus, the implication is it'll have that same pattern for us. First of all, the content of discipleship, or the content of the gospel. How does Mark go about his account of this life-altering, category-busting, inbreaking of God into human life and history. He tells us the story of Jesus, the Son of God. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, gives us the interpretive clue to the whole text, the whole narrative, when he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So the subject of the gospel is Jesus Christ, and who is Jesus Christ? He's the Son of God. But what is the gospel? It is vitally important, and this is where words have meaning. And we have to be precise in our defining of words. For it is vitally important that we realize that the word gospel, the Greek word is euangelion, is not advice, it is not principles, but it means news. The Greek word euangelion means good news. The heart of the gospel is the announcement of life-altering, history-shaping, world-changing news. That's to be drawn in distinction to two other things that are true, but we have to make these distinctions. 
So often we say, what is the gospel? And we refer to things that are more precisely the historical events of the gospel. So we refer to things like Jesus' birth, his incarnation, his life, his ministry, or his death, or his resurrection. All of those are literally true, historically true, and they are events of the gospel. They are describing the news, but they are events of the gospel. The good news that Jesus did these things. Or, oftentimes we will define the gospel in terms of its results, its benefits, its effects, wonderful effects and benefits, like we are forgiven of all our sins. As far as the east is from the west, God has removed our sins from us. Or he counts us, he declares us righteous in his sight. Because we're united to Jesus Christ, we are treated as if we are just as beautiful, just as loving, just as devoted, just as gorgeous as Jesus is. He counts us, right? That's the the glorious doctrine of justification. Or taken right out of Mark chapter 9, because of the fact that God the Father said said in the transfiguration, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And we're united to Christ. We are united. We're connected to him. He's not here and us here. That's not what we mean by when we say follow We're actually united with Jesus. We've died with him. We're risen with him. Paul even says in Ephesians, we're seated in the heavenlies with him. We're so united to him. That when God says to Jesus, this is my beloved son, he has adopted us into his family. And he says about you who are in Christ, you are his beloved children. He takes great joy in you. You are a delight to him. We've been adopted. But these things, justification, adoption, sanctification, these are benefits. These are effects. These are the results of the gospel. The gospel itself is news, phenomenal news, the best news you will ever hear, but it is news. News that describes and that is who Jesus is, and what he has done. As one commentator put it, Jesus of Nazareth was a real man living and dying at a turbulent moment in real space-time history. His message and the message about him that the early Christians called good news, that's the content, the gospel, was not about how to escape that world. It was about how the one true God was changing it radically and forever. The news was that something happened. In the person of Jesus Christ, God returned to the earth. He came to the world. He was born. He lived. He died. He was risen again. He was ascended to the right hand of the throne on high, and he has poured out his spirit upon his church, upon his people, to indwell them, to be the fullness of his body, on the earth as is in heaven. The glorious news of the gospel. So for the Christian, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be the defining shape of our lives. It has a content. That's the first theme that we've talked about. But that content takes place in our lives here and now in a particular context. And for Mark... Mark harkens back on the theme of the Exodus, basically saying that in his gospel, he is saying that 
in the coming of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, a new exodus has come. And the context of that exodus, when the people of God were delivered out of Egypt, out of the house of Pharaoh, out of slavery, did they immediately go to the promised land? What did they have to do? They had to go through the wilderness. And Mark's gospel, especially the first eight chapters, puts our context in the wilderness. Think about when Jesus was baptized. And again, the voice from heaven, this is my beloved son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And then immediately what happened, he was driven out by the Spirit where into the wilderness where Jesus went through his own exodus as a human for us, as our substitute. Remember, he didn't only die in our place, he lived in our place. He lived the life we should have lived. And part of that was he went through our exodus. We'll deal in much more detail with this next week. But notice some of the themes that even come out of Mark 9 in the transfiguration passage. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John where? To a high mountain, a new exodus. Instead of Sinai, you have a new mountain where who appears? There's Moses and Elijah. Peter wants to build them tents and what happens? A cloud, the glory cloud overshadows them. All of these themes. Jesus is going through our exodus and part of that exodus is to go through the wilderness. And Jesus has gone through the wilderness first in our place. But of course, it's very important as we understand the context of our Christian life that we understand what the wilderness is. See, is the wilderness like walking through the woods? Is the wilderness like a forest where you come, maybe you've got your picnic basket and you're coming and you want to kind of lay out your, your little, you know, thing out there and you're bringing out your fried chicken and maybe you're going fishing and you brought some adult beverages and you're ready out. You're out in the wilderness, right? And it's out there and you're ready. That's not the wilderness according to the Bible. For as one commentator reminded us, the wilderness is a place of thorns, a place where nothing grows, a place of thirst where all the wells are dry. There's no bread in the wilderness because you can't grow wheat you can't grow things. There's only thorns. There's no water, so it's a place of thirst. As a place of thirst, a place of hunger, it's a place of loneliness because it cannot support life. And commentators remind us in the Bible, it is in the wilderness that you typically meet God. Where did Moses meet God in the burning bush? It was the wilderness. Where did Jacob wrestle with God face to face? It was the wilderness. Where did Israel meet God? Not Egypt, but Sinai and the wilderness. They were made the people of God in principle, and in 40 years and wandering in the wilderness, they became the people of God in practice. And why is the wilderness generally the place where you go to meet God? Because the wilderness is a place where you can't stay alive without the intervention of God. Which means the wilderness is a place, practically, that shows you experientially and existentially that you are completely dependent upon God. That there is no life apart from God. You can't support yourself in the wilderness. The wilderness totally strips us of our autonomy, of our independence, of our arrogance, of our rugged individualism. You cannot make it on your own. C.S. Lewis explained it this way. He said, most people, if they really learned how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. He writes, there are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you. 
but they never keep their promise. And here's what it means to really find and meet Jesus the King. And the wilderness is where this can usually happen. Something happens in your life that makes you look at the very core, the very foundations of your life, and you can come and realize, I am going to die without God. It's not my career. It's not my family. It's not my friends. It's not my looks. It's not my success. It's not my achievements. It's not my money. It's none of these things. The context for the Christian life, Mark's gospel is all about this. The context of the Christian life is the wilderness that shows us that God and God alone is the rivers of living water. That God and God alone is the fountain of life. That we are totally dependent on God. That he is the bread of life. He is the rivers of living water. He is the fountain of life. And it is only in the wilderness that you can experience that and realize you're dependent on the king. Which is why God called, think about this, God doesn't call us to the wilderness simply or only by ourselves. Yes, sometimes we have to go through these things by ourselves, but it's why also you can't live the Christian life in isolation. He called the people of Israel. He called 12 disciples. He is forming a people, a community for himself because we need each other in the wilderness. We're not only dependent, we are interdependent. If we don't have each other, we are missing out and losing a vital means of grace that God has provided for us. Do we recognize we can't make it on our own, that this strong individualism just won't work? The context of the Christian life is the wilderness. Which brings us now to the last theme, kind of where we've left off, and that is the pattern of the gospel. And the pattern of the gospel is the pattern of our discipleship, and it is suffering and glory. Remember I said Peter's confession of Christ. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter's, you are the Christ, ends the first half of the narrative, Mark chapters 1 through 8. And then Jesus immediately, because chapters 9 through 16 are going to go through this, so he even begins with the disciples, what are the implications of that confession? And Jesus begins to explain to the disciples, first of all, what those implications are. And the text tells us that he, it's very interesting, verse 32 of chapter 8 says, he told them this plainly. In other words, this isn't a parable. This isn't a cryptic saying. This isn't something where Mark has to go let the reader understand. He told them this in plain speech, very plain language so that they could understand. And they still didn't get it, as Peter's response shows. But he told them plainly, Verse 31, he will suffer many things. This is the pattern for him. Suffering, rejection at the hands of the Jewish leadership, the scribes and the elders, to the point of being killed. And then glory, rising again. Chapters 9 through 16, his mission. Remember I said, you have who is Jesus? What is Jesus all about? What is Jesus all about? Suffering and glory. And then, of course, after Peter's attempt at rebuking Jesus and Jesus is confronting Peter, Jesus goes on to explain this pattern that he had, the implications are the same for us. John's gospel puts it very simply, a servant is not greater than his master. If this was Jesus' pattern, this will be our pattern. If Jesus' pattern was lay down your life only for it to be 
lifted again. If Jesus' pattern was suffering and glory, and you're united to Jesus, what is your pattern going to be? The pattern of our Christian life, the pattern of discipleship, is suffering and glory. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. It's kind of like what Jesus is saying is, you still confess me as Messiah? You still confess me as the Christ? Let me show you what that confession, let me show you what belief actually entails. What it means. It means here's the pattern. Are you prepared to suffer and die? And live your life. That doesn't mean just, see, we think of everything circumstantially. We need to learn to think of things biblically. Biblically, what that means is we have a pattern of relating, a pattern of loving God and loving others and loving our neighbor as we lay down our lives for them, lay down our ambitions, lay down our agendas, lay down our interests for their sake and the gospels and trusting ourselves, surrendering ourselves to the fact that we belong to God, that we're his, that he has us, that no matter what, we are his. He will take care of us. Do we entrust ourselves to the goodness of God? Do we genuinely, functionally, I know we intellectually, do we functionally, this is sanctification, do we functionally believe that God is good, good enough that we can pattern our lives after laying down our lives for others so that husbands, you approach your wife with a fundamental lay down your life for her. Wives, you fundamentally approach life. We lay down our lives. Parents, we lay down our lives for children. Friends, we approach each other. We listen to each other. We embrace each other. We have compassion on each other. We love each other in such a way that we lay down our lives for one another. One commentator put it this way. He says, To follow Christ, a person must become apostate from his egocentric self. Self-denial is much deeper and much more difficult than just, it involves, well, will I give up that extra plate of chicken wings? Yeah, there's self-denial involved in that, and I'll admit I'm not very good at it. But it's so much more than that. It's an entire approach to relating that says, for whoever would save his life. In other words, if you're holding on to your ambitions, your egocentric self, the promise of God is you will lose it. You won't really live. You won't live as you were created to live. For how were you created to live? You were created for love. Why did God create the world in the first place? Do you think he created the world because he needed us? I think God somehow got lonely and said, well, you know what? I'm really feeling bad. I want somebody to, you know, watch the game with this afternoon. Oh, I'll create the world. God has no needs within himself. He's self-existent. He's eternal. He's completely self-sufficient. Why did he create the world? To share his love that we could receive his love, participate in his love, and then extend his love to one another and to the world. He created the world as a place and a home for love. 
And Mark, Jesus is teaching us here in Mark's gospel, for whoever would save his life, you love yourself, you hold on to yourself, you're living for your own agenda and your own interest, you're losing your reason for existence. You're re- losing the reason you were created in the first place. See, the paradox is that in belonging to Jesus, losing yourself, you fulfill the purpose for which you were created. The purpose you were created in the first place, the purpose that we lost in our fall back in the garden, and the purpose for which Jesus came, and through the triumph of love, lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. As is so frequently said by how many pastors today? lived in our place and died in our place. Why? To restore us to love. Sanctification is once again learning to love. There's a reason that's the great commandment, the summation of the whole thing. Jesus never abandons his creation design, never abandons his purpose for making the world in the first place. And he's restoring love. He went to the cross so that love could be victorious. And God raised him from the dead for the triumph of love. And in God's ascension, in Jesus' ascension, he is ruling over you, governing your life in love. For whoever would save his life, you're going to hold on to your life, you're going to lose love. But whoever loses his life, living and learning to live that life of love, for Jesus and the gospel's sake, will find it. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, give up yourself and you will find yourself. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, despair, loneliness, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. The content of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, lived out in the context of the wilderness where the victory has been inaugurated but not yet completed. Following the pattern, our discipleship, following a pattern of continual suffering and glory. Lay down your life, giving your life away for Jesus and sake to find life. This is good news. Don't hear this as bad news. This is good news. Finding your life means losing your life for Jesus. Do you believe that? Father, we pray that you would shape our hearts according to this message. We pray, Father, that we would learn the content of the gospel, the context of the gospel, and the pattern of the gospel in how we live our ordinary lives, how we love you, how we love one another, how we love our neighbor. Teach us these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We now respond being renewed in the word of God, and by the grace of God, we respond in a time of prayer. Would you join me as we go before the Lord? in a time of pastoral prayer. Let's pray.
We prayed earlier the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. We thank you, Father, that you are our Father through adoption, that in and through Jesus Christ you have adopted us as your own, that we are your beloved, that we are a great joy to you, that you delight in us, you nurture us, you feed us, you nourish us, you provide for us, and that you're not only my father, your father, you're our father, the father of your family, the father of your children. And so we together lift up your children. We pray that we would be about hallowing your name, praising you, loving you, seeking your kingdom to come, your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, asking your forgiveness and seeking daily bread. We pray for your children. We pray, Father, for your children who are hurting. Lord, we are reminded And we pray for your love to be upon those who have lost so much in the recent hurricanes in Houston, through Hurricane Harvey, and here in Florida, through Hurricane Irma. We pray for the church to be the church, taking care of needs, meeting needs in very practical ways. May the church be salt and light, as you call her to be. Father, we pray for people to... Pray that you use this to display your glory, that you use these tragic circumstances, these, these, this, this your providence. We pray that you'd be used to reveal yourself in deeper ways, that people would come to know you through this, that you would strengthen people. Of our own congregation, I, I think of dear Kay Sovereign, I think of her daughter Esther, and I pray for them. Lord, as they rebuild homes and as they rebuild lives, oh God, I ask that you would comfort and nurture them and give them strength. I pray for our people who are hurting. I ask, Father, that you'd be with them, people who are facing uncertain times or maybe doubtful times. Lord God, I pray that you would move in our hearts that we would seek after you. I think, Father, of our missionaries. I thank you, Father, for the privilege we have of partnering with people like the Cobbs and the Swansons, people in Southeast Asia, for Chuck Garriott and Greg and Ashley Sovereign, Phil Bellamy, for Tolly, I ask, Father, that you would strengthen them, that Jesus, you yourself, would be their peace, that you'd be watching over them spiritually and physically and in their, their families, their health, their finances, protecting their lives. Father, I pray for our witness here. I pray for our love for you, our love for one another, and our love for this county, this area that we live in, that we would be good neighbors, that you would help us to be a reflection of your love to the people around us. Father, we ask now that you would continue to strengthen us as we prepare to leave, that you would renew us as we go into the world living our daily, ordinary lives, that we would do so as the faithful presence of who you are in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.